0: With me today is paco fabian campaign and communications director for our revolution our revolution is a grassroots organization that grew out of the success of bernie sanders historic 2016 presidential campaign our revolution members are on the front lines of change and are part of grassroots efforts to push the political revolution forward our revolution has hundreds of thousands of members organized into 600 groups across the nation that come together to create local political powerhouses. Paco, welcome to Good For Now.
1: Hey, Jack, thanks for having me, appreciate it.
0: Yeah, absolutely, I'm, I'm looking forward to talking to you. This is, obviously we're told every four years that it's the most important election of our time, <laughs> yeah. um, but those words have never felt truer uh, than right now, so I'm, I'm really excited to have you on the show. Um, I wanted to ask you the burning question, pun intended, is what are you hearing from your hundreds of thousands of members uh, and other members of the Bernie movement at large? Are they prepared to vote for Biden-Harris?
1: Look, I mean, I think uh, overwhelmingly uh, both, you know, our revolution as an organization and our members uh, really believe that, um, you know, Trump is a threat to our democracy. Uh, We all fully understand that Joe Biden is not our our number one pick uh, for president uh, and neither is uh, Kamala Harris as vice president. Uh, But, uh, you know, realistically speaking, uh, they're a much better option than another four years of Trump. And the reason is, uh, for us at least, um, you know, if Trump gets four more years, we know that a progressive agenda will be completely stalled. It's not going to go anywhere. Um, for four years, where if we have a Biden presidency, uh, and hopefully a majority in the House and in the Senate, then we know we can push, right? Uh, And we know we can because we've done it already. We pushed Joe Biden uh, to improve the platform at the Democratic National Convention. Um, You know, we pushed uh, for uh, changing the rules uh, of how we're going to pick the president four years from uh, november at the next election and so if there's one thing we've learned uh also with previous experience with joe biden when he was a part of the obama administration is that uh, we can pressure him and we can push him and we can get more than we will get out of a trump administration
0: it seems like there's a lot of conversation going on around uh especially in social media but with with people who are, are bernie supporters that i talk to um that really firmly understand that, like you said, another four years of this administration will set us back decades and decades and decades, not just four years. So the movement, the progressive movement is going to be stalled by those decades, um, or the equivalent of those decades. And Joe Biden has, you know, he's, not We're not the most enthusiastic supporting Joe Biden. However, we do, I think, understand that he's a great example of how democracy works. We're, we're able to hold his feet to the fire and hold him accountable. Right. And I believe he does listen to, to grassroots organizations like yours. Uh, he was an instrumental voice in, in helping pass uh, and legalize same-sex marriage in this country uh, when, when they campaigned uh, against it. So I think once people took to the streets and voiced their opinions, they, they listened and and
1: act on that. Right. And that's a perfect example, right? I don't think Joe Biden started out, uh, as a champion of, uh, you know, gay rights or, or a proponent of same sex marriage. Uh, But he got there and he got there because people pushed him, Right. And so we know we can push him. Uh, you know, another example of that is, uh, the fight for 15, right. Um, uh, I was part, uh, before I joined uh, our revolution about a year and a half ago, I spent almost 10 years in the labor movement. Hmm. And so, um, you know, our experience with Joe Biden there, uh, you know, when uh, pre- when candidate Obama was first elected, right, we met with them um, and, you know, said, you know, we need uh, Employee Free Choice Act, EFCA, we need, uh, you know, the, the president to use his executive authority to, you know, help grow the labor movement. And for the first four years, they didn't do it, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, And so that's sort of the birth of, you know, the Walmart workers campaign that happened during the Obama administration, the Fight for 15, uh, Good Jobs Nation, which was a a campaign of federal contract workers. These are folks that the president has direct authority to, to intervene on behalf of, right? You know, folks that are like, You know, the janitors at the Senate or uh, the food service workers at the Pentagon, right? These are federal uh, buildings that the president has direct access to and uh, influence over. And, you know, for the first four years, they didn't do anything. So when people were in the streets, right, Walmart workers, Fight for 15 workers, federal contract workers, port truck drivers, all of a sudden what we heard for the first four years was quote unquote illegal from, you know, the White House, all of a sudden, You know, the president signed an executive order raising wages for federal contract workers, Mm -hmm. providing paid sick days for federal contract workers uh, and, you know, preventing things like wage theft and other other sort of abuses from happening under federal contracts. So we know we can push and we know that they'll listen to people on the streets. uh, And there's plenty of examples of that. And so that's really going to be our focus right between now and November is, uh, you know, defeating Trump that's a priority. Um, We're doing it by uh, trying to focus our efforts in the Midwest, places like Michigan, uh, Pennsylvania, Ohio, uh, places in Wisconsin, places Mm -hmm. that voted for Obama twice before voting for Trump, uh, that really are the places that gave Trump the White House,
0: yeah, I wanted to ask you I wanted to ask you real quick about about that. Um, that's one of those itches that I just can't scratch and I'm glad that you're here to to help me with this because according to the analysis of 2016 Cooperative Congressional Election Survey, fewer than 80% of those who voted for Bernie Sanders in the Democratic primary in 2016 ended up voting for Hillary Clinton with 12% of those who backed Bernie Sanders actually casting a vote for Donald Trump. Um, 12% of, of the millions of supporters, that's not a small amount of people. And when you look at the same states that we're looking at this time around, Michigan, Wisconsin, and Pennsylvania, you're looking at... A very narrow margin that had a huge impact to Wisconsin alone. Trump won Wisconsin by only 22,000 votes, right. but 51,000 Bernie supporters uh, during the primaries ended up defecting and voting for Trump, which is a margin that could have given Wisconsin to Hillary Clinton. Michigan is no different with 10,000. It's
1: 10,000 in Michigan, yeah.
0: Yeah, and forty-seven thousand Bernie uh, supporters during the primary ended up voting for for Trump. And Pennsylvania had the widest margin, with forty-four thousand uh, margin for in, in favor of Trump, and one hundred and sixteen thousand Bernie supporters defected and voted for Trump. Um, that Wisconsin, Michigan, and Pennsylvania—we're looking at the same exact states. Uh, what yeah. are your What are your thoughts on that?
1: So look, I mean, I think there's a few differences, right? I think during twenty sixteen. Um, you know, the Hillary Clinton campaign almost wrote those places off, Mm -hmm. right? Uh, They didn't do huge pushes in Michigan or Wisconsin. Uh, I don't think the candidate ever visited Michigan. I could be wrong, but I'm pretty sure that's the case.
0: I think you're right during the campaign.
1: Uh, And uh, the one thing Trump did do in those places was talk about jobs, talk about, you know, the forgotten men and women quote unquote right is i think the the line that he used mm-hmm. the forgotten men and women will be forgotten no more um and you know to be honest he made a lot of promises to these folks right um i've been involved in helping out the workers uh at uh the gm plant in lordstown ohio right that recently shut down yeah uh trump was in lordstown i believe in 2017 did, during a big rally and said, look, don't sell your homes, jobs are coming back. Um, and a year and a half later, the GM Lordstone plant shut down. Everybody that worked there had to either retire or move to you know as far away as Tennessee and other places in order to keep working uh, at GM. And so uh, Trump in those areas campaigned as a worker champion, but the reality is much different, right? Jobs have left mm-hmm. under his watch uh, federal contract uh, companies with federal contracts have shipped jobs overseas at a, the fastest clip, uh, or at least faster than the Obama that it happened under the Obama administration. Mm-hmm. And so, what our goal is is to lift up those stories between now and November in places like Michigan and Ohio uh, and Pennsylvania, and say, "Look, you may have voted for this guy, maybe because Hillary wasn't talking your talk, uh, but look at the reality, right?" Are jobs, are you better off now than you were uh, when Trump took over? I don't think so. Uh, if anything, you probably had to sell your home. You know, your family might've gotten split up. I mean, GM Lordstown was the largest employer in that area, right? Youngstown, Lordstown, um, that whole area of uh, Northwest Ohio. And uh, you know, those jobs are gone and they you know, I think Mike Pence was in Lordstown uh, last week, I believe. Um, because the, a new company has taken over the GM Lordstown plan. It's called Lordstown Motors, right? They're building electric, uh, or they want to build electric uh, pickup trucks, which are great for the environment, but um, they don't have the capital yet to start building <laughs> trucks, right? So there's no jobs there yet. And it's unclear if they'll be able to raise the capital to do so, right? And so, Uh, Those folks are in in a real bind, right? Uh, I think I saw the childhood poverty level in in that area, in the Youngstown area, is 57.5% childhood poverty. I mean, these folks, I think, had nothing to lose, right, when they decided to vote for Trump, those that did. yeah. Um, And now I think they're realizing that that wasn't the right call.
0: Yeah, it may have even come down to, and we heard this a lot, that it was... uh, the lesser of two evils,
1: right? As progressives, I mean, that's our choice a lot of the time, right? Right.
0: But now that we've gone through four years of this, it's no longer even a question of a lesser of two evils. It's you're voting for pure unadulterated evil. At this point, voting for for Trump, right. um, it's not even it's not even a, a fair comparison. So hopefully, hopefully we don't see a repeat of, of 2016 because, like I said, those those margins are so narrow.
1: Yeah, uh, I mean, 10,000 in Michigan, you know, you could argue, you know, decided the election, right? And, yeah, uh, and you know, it's it's on us to to talk to these folks, but really talk to them, right? Don't dismiss them maybe because they voted for Trump last time and now they're having doubts, don't uh, get on a moral high horse. Right? Yep. Talk to them about their life. And, you know, is it better or is it not? And, and uh, you know, that's some of the work we're going to try to be doing.
0: That's good. Yeah, I'm, I'm from Michigan originally, so I wasn't I wasn't surprised uh, that he was able to tap into into that. Uh, that level of anger and, and, and fear. Uh, It's frustration. frustration. It's, it's absolutely legitimate and it's, it's very well, it's felt in Michigan, uh, especially around the economy. So there's a, a saying that, you know, around the old automotive industry in Detroit, when, when Detroit falls, the rest of the country falls because everything was intertwined mm-hmm. at least in, in the Rust Belt.
1: Right. Um, and there, you know, the last manufa- automotive manufacturing plant in, in the Detroit metro area shut down at the mm-hmm. same time that Lordstown did, right? Yep. So there's no longer any manufacturing, automotive manufacturing happening in Detroit, which is, yep. you know, a, a big change from, you know, the history of the Midwestern economy, right?
0: I wanted to ask you, and again, you're the perfect person to talk to about this uh, with your experience in the labor movement as well. Um, the The fight for 15 has been going on for several years now. And I don't remember exactly when, when it started, but I feel like it was about 2013-ish. maybe, yeah, I was going to say five, six years, but maybe seven yeah. years now. So is it time to increase that to maybe seventeen dollars an hour. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, when we started it, you know, it, you know, seven years ago, it was fifteen dollars an hour. But when you look at how minimum wage was originally set up to keep pace with inflation, as well as keeping pace with productivity growth, they did that for the first thirty years between 1938 and 1968. They actually did that. And then it fell off a cliff and right. stopped keeping pace with uh, productivity and inflation. Right. So if we did that, if we if we increased minimum wage, keeping step with productivity and inflation now, we would be looking at an estimated $24 an hour, which is only $48,000 a year for a right. full-time position. Right. So is it, is it time maybe to, to increase that ask? Because we're already right. behind the ball.
1: Yeah, no, we were definitely behind the ball. I mean, the minimum wage, the federal minimum wage hasn't increased in over 10 years now, if I'm not mistaken. It's still stuck at $7.25 an hour. Uh, And if you're a tipped worker, uh, that's $2.13 an hour. So, um, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think, uh, you know, somewhere along the line, productivity and wages generally sort of became unstuck, right? And Mm -hmm. um, because if you look at the sort of graph before that, they're very much parallel, right? They're growing uh, like hand in hand. Uh, But uh, yeah, I mean, I think part of it is, you know, uh, the labor movement has gotten weaker, right? Uh, And in many ways, uh, Democrats uh, see the labor movement as, you know, funding for campaigns. They see it as volunteers, right? To go knock on doors and run phone banks. Uh, but they don't ever see unions as an economic actor in the in the wider economy, and uh, and that's a shame because that's really what uh, created the broadest middle class the country has ever seen. Right? It wasn't, um, and it was deliberate. Right? It was created, and it just happened. Right? Uh, right. The federal government, uh, you know, decided to to intervene and and make it. Uh, you know, and make it an incentive for workers to form unions, uh, and and uh, an incentive to business as well, right? And right. and you know, we saw the broadest middle class the world has ever seen then, uh, where you know a one-income family could, you know, maybe not be rich, but they could take a vacation every year, and you know, mom could stay home and you know take care of the household, and and feed them. that doesn't exist anymore, right? right. It does not. Uh, and, you know, I think part of it is the decline of the labor movement. And so, um, you could argue too, that that's a reason, um, you know, Democrats politically have been having such a hard time at the state and local level as well, right? Like state mm-hmm. legislatures and everything else. Um, you know, there's no longer troops and there's no longer treasure, right? To run yeah. campaigns. And so, um, that's, that's, a, a problem. And so I, you know, I think one of the Things that I hope the Biden campaign takes uh, from, from the Bernie campaign more seriously is, is you know, labor as an economic actor uh, in the economy, uh, you know, helping boost up wages, benefits, etc. But also, um, you know, helping elect Democrats up and down the ballot, uh, because we've seen, you know, the Democratic Party in a lot of places sort of is, is a shell of what it used to be, if it even exists functionally at all. Uh, and, and, you know, somebody has got to fill that void and it's unfortunately recently been filled by a stronger Republican local organization than, than by Democrats or labor.
0: Right. Yeah. The Republicans have always been good at, well, at least maybe not always, but in the last 20 years, uh, have, have been great at organizing at the local level and really infiltrating local elections. Uh, from, you know, your uh, commerce elections to sheriffs to mm-hmm. school board elections, all of those things. And it's had a huge impact on on our day-to-day lives. So um, is that one of your your focuses right now is to, to build that grassroots organization at the local level while also obviously focusing at the national level?
1: Yeah, so right now we're operating under a four-point plan, uh, and – you know, obviously, number one is defeating Trump or else, you know, we're not going to be able to move anything else, right, at the national level. Uh, the second is, you know, getting more progressives elected to Congress, right, uh, strengthening the Congressional Progressive Caucus on the House side, then maybe winning a majority and being able to change the rules at the Senate level, so that, you know, we can get rid of the filibuster and maybe move uh, more of our policy priorities, right? The third, the third point of our plan is what you just mentioned, right, is growing a deep bench of progressives up and down the ballot. I mean, we've endorsed over the last year and a half uh, folks like the drainage commissioner in Brazoria County, Texas, right? Uh, Someone that, uh, you know, has a say, this is in the Houston area, right? Which floods a lot. So the drainage commissioner is going to have a huge impact on the lives of those folks, right? Uh, Local district attorneys, right? Folks like Chesa Boudin in San Francisco, who is, um, you know, one of the first things he did was end cash bail, which is a deeply unfair system. (laughs) If you can't afford to pay bail, you got to stay in jail, right? And so, um, you know, he's making some other changes at the local level, which are impacting people's lives directly. And not only that, but at the local level, you know, if you have a policy that gets implemented and it's received well and it works, that that policy can then be uh, exported up to the state level and maybe even up to the federal level. Uh, and so in many ways, you know, local jurisdictions are laboratories of experimentation and uh, and a lot of federal policy comes out of those places. Uh, and so, you know, state uh, state legislatures, state senates, city councils, uh, we've been supporting uh, a lot more candidates that are running for those local positions uh, because they also end up running later for mayor or for governor or for Congress or for Senate, right? And so if we have a deep bench of progressives, uh, we have folks uh, that are ready to take on, you know, some of the entrenched Republicans that have been taking over state and local jurisdictions for, like you mentioned, the last 20 years or so.
0: Yeah, they're, they're not exactly the sexiest um, positions to be elected. No, but, but
1: they can, like I said, they can have a direct impact on the lives of the folks that live in those areas, 100%. much more than a senator or a member of Congress can, right? And, and when those folks see that that worked, oh, maybe I can bring that up to, to the state or federal level, right? And, yeah. and, uh, and that's how one way that we can achieve some change.
0: Yeah, and I'll bring it all the way back to uh, same sex marriage. That started at the, the local and, and state levels. And it got to a point where you had so many different states who would legalize it. Same thing with uh, with marijuana legalization.
1: Right. Or even the have... Fight for 15, right? Which we talked about earlier. I think yep. uh, Seattle and uh, SeaTac in Seattle, Tacoma, that's mm-hmm. another town by the airport. I was one of the first jurisdictions to go to fifteen, and and then there was a domino effect, right? It started happening in other places, and so yeah, they can have an impact.
0: How are you hearing from from your members directly right now about what the number one issue is for them in the campaign, aside from making sure that that Donald Trump isn't reelected? What are they are they talking about the election or uh, excuse me, the economy? Is it healthcare, the environment? What's predominant uh, in, in their minds right now?
1: Yeah, so we do, you know, regular surveys of our members. Um, and, you know, the top three issues, I think, are Medicare for All, especially in this, you know, pandemic moment uh, where uh, everybody's, well, not everybody's, but the majority of people's health care is tied to their employer, and people are losing their jobs left and right. They're being left without health care, right? And so Medicare for All is a is, uh, a big issue for our folks that has been for a while, uh, you know, environmental stuff, particularly the Green New Deal is something that our folks support very heavily. You know, we were involved in and uh, in working to reelect Senator Markey in Massachusetts, mm-hmm. the Senate sponsor of the Green New Deal. And, and, you know, he was able to win, which is great. Uh, that, that's encouraging to us uh, that we'll have a, another progressive in, in the Senate. Uh, so Bernie, Markey. Merkley, a few others are are ready to fight. Uh, and uh, the third, I think, also in many ways, based on the moment we're in, is uh, criminal justice reform, and uh, you know, making sure uh, police departments are held accountable uh, for some of the questionable actions of their of their officers, uh, and more broadly, uh, you know, supporting DAs that can have a huge Impact in those local jurisdictions. You know, our, our group in Oregon was able to uh, help elect Mike Schmidt, who's the new DA of Multnomah County, which includes Portland. He's, he's my he, DA. Yeah, oh, I'm, in, I'm in Multnomah <laughs> County. He's yeah. my
0: DA, and I voted for him. So, right.
1: and so, I mean, you know what he's had to deal with, right? He had to take over. He had to take over the office early, mm-hmm. right? Because the the former DA retired early, and so he was appointed. And has been dealing with what's been going on in Portland ever since, right? Yep. And uh, and so he's got a tough job, but uh, we think you know he's got the right values to come up with the right solutions.
0: Real quick, I wanted to mention uh, Medicare for All is one of the issues that I've had with um, with that platform. It isn't necessarily. I'm sorry. The, which platform? Uh, Medicare for All. Um, it, it it's the branding. Of it is what mm-hmm. I have an issue with. I believe wholeheartedly that that healthcare is a human right, and every single human being, no matter where you are in the world, deserves the highest quality uh, healthcare and medical attention, no questions asked. the The issue that I have with it is that Medicare is kind of a mess for people who have it. There's, it's not, it's not free uh like a lot of people think obviously you pay into it through payroll taxes and it's available to you but you have medicare a medicare b medicare c medicare d um and it's a lot of it is based on your income there's a very small subset of people who actually receive uh quote unquote free medicare but a lot of people do pay monthly premiums and high costs for uh, prescription drugs And it's very difficult for people to, uh, sift through which plan works for them because each of them are very limited in scope. So what does Medicare for all actually mean for, uh, for your organization and how can we, how can we frame this a little bit better for people?
1: So, yeah, you know, a long time ago, uh, I've been doing some work on Medicare for all, uh, for for a while. But a long time ago, I was doing work with what was then the California Nurses Association and Physicians for a National Health Program. And uh, we had a campaign. This was during the Bush years. Uh, You know, Dick Cheney has always had uh, health issues, right? He, I think he doesn't, his heart's in a backpack now, I believe. He carries it around.
0: I think he's Uh, on a Tesla supercharger now. He's plugged in.
1: (laughs) And so, uh, you know, we had a, a campaign then that was called, you know, Everybody Deserves Cheney Care, mm-hmm. right? I had had five heart attacks, pre-existing conditions, la, la, la. And, you know, had the like best Cadillac healthcare plan paid for by you and I as taxpayers, right? Mm-hmm. And so, um, look, I mean, branding aside, and I understand, you know, nothing's perfect, right? It's, it's sometimes hard to convey uh, the real meaning of something in just a phrase. Right. But for... For our revolution, uh, you know, it means uh, healthcare, as you mentioned, as a, as a right, a human right, everybody deserves healthcare. It means, um, you know, not having to do co-pays, not having to pay for medication, uh, being able to choose whatever doctor you want to go for, uh, because there's only going to be one person that's going to be paying for it or one entity that's going to be paying for it. And that's the government, right? Uh, for a long time, it was called single, single payer, mm-hmm. right? Uh, again another problematic term, right? Nobody right. uses that much anymore. But, uh, but, and, and that, and it, it sort of conveys, you know, who's going to be paying for it. I mean, we're all going to pay for it in the form of taxes mm-hmm. one way or another, but, uh, the person that's going to be paying the doctors is going to be one single payer and that's going to be the government. Right. And you get mm-hmm. to go to whoever, whichever doctor you want to go to, there's no networks. You're not going to be excluded from, uh, from one network versus another, your doctor's not going to reject you because you don't have the right healthcare company representing you, right? Uh, and uh, and I think, you know, that ultimately will end up saving people money, right, not having to pay for medicines, not having to do co-pays every time you go to the doctor, you know, God forbid there's an emergency and, and you have to go to the emergency room for some reason, uh, you're not going to get a ridiculous bill, right? Um, Because, I mean, I I heard a story of a guy that had to go get a COVID test and, you know, got a bill for $10,000, right? that's just out of control. And so every other country in in the world uh, that we would consider, you know, economically stable and developed uh, gives its citizens uh, healthcare as a right, Mm -hmm. uh, education as a right, uh, and we should uh, do the same. and, And- You know, we came close in the 40s, right? When Medicare was first set up, it was originally going to be Medicare for All, right? Yep. Uh, But, you know, some other forces were at play there and and we didn't quite get there. But uh, uh, we'll we'll get there soon. Uh, It's not a matter of if at this point, it's just a matter of when.
0: Yeah, I agree. I mean, you even start hearing some of the some Republicans, moderate Republicans, the few that are left um, talking or sharing their concerns with how, how the medical system is, is currently working. They haven't full-throatedly uh, acknowledged that Medicare for All or however we want to brand it is the way to go, but they're alluding to that to kind of bait their constituents into a response to get their feedback. So I do believe that a lot of people... Uh, and you have to uh, give credit where credit is due. And Bernie Sanders certainly uh, brought this to the forefront during 2016 and even before uh, this was right. a hot topic for for him. Yeah,
1: um, and and I also give credit to to the nurses that have been fighting for this for a long time, right? It's mm-hmm. not National Nurses United, but it used to be just the California Nurses Association, uh, physicians for a national health program that have been at it for a long time and you know, hundreds, if not thousands of activists all around the country that have spent decades, right, pushing for yep. this. Um, and uh, we're going to get there. Yeah,
0: I agree. All right, Paco, I know you got to go. I really, really appreciate it. I hope that we have an opportunity to, to circle back. We can talk about a few other issues leading up to, uh, up to the election and kind of hash things out a little bit uh this was absolutely a pleasure for for me to have this opportunity to talk to you today
1: likewise thanks jack for inviting me on and uh look forward to being on again soon all right good for now
0: all right that does it for the show i hope everybody enjoyed it there's one last bit of business that i want to bring to your attention if you go to our website we just launched a voting resource center so you can go to gfnpodcast.com where you'll find every bit of information that you could possibly need leading up to the election, including a state-by-state breakdown of Malin voting laws, early voting, how to request an absentee ballot or a Malin ballot. You can even register to vote or verify your voting status if you're already registered to vote. One other thing that you can do on the website is register as a poll worker. This is absolutely essential because usually the elderly are the ones who volunteer in large numbers to work our polling stations during an election. But because of COVID, younger populations, healthier populations are encouraged to go to the website and register to be a poll worker in your community. It's really easy and they train you and you're doing a service to the most vulnerable among us. It's really important that we vote in record numbers this year, we typically see about a 50% voter turnout, which is pathetic. Out of all registered voters, we typically see 50% show up to vote. We need to shatter that and end up at 70 or 80%, if not higher this time around, because we cannot afford another four years of this. So check us out, gfnpodcast.com, All the resources are made available and it's really easy to use. All right. Good for now. This is the part I don't like, but it's important. A lot of podcasts release new episodes on Monday but we cover issues that impact people every day. So we release new episodes as soon as they're complete. Make sure to subscribe to get notified when new episodes are available. You can even visit our website at gfnpodcast.com and subscribe to get notified before an episode is even released. This podcast is all about keeping the conversation going. So we want to hear from you. Be a part of the conversation by leaving us a voice message at anchor.fm backslash good dash four dash now nobody's gonna remember that nobody all right i'll say it again anchor.fm backslash good dash four dash now if you remember that leave me a message if you leave us a voice message there's a good chance we'll play it on an upcoming episode and talk about it tell us how much you love an episode or how much you hate it and why or ask us a question that maybe deserves more attention, and we'll try to answer it. If you don't want to leave us a voice message, you can still be part of the conversation by sending a secure email on our website at gfnpodcast.com. We talk about a lot of problems in the world, but we also talk about solutions. So stay informed, and stay connected, and subscribe now.
2: He a written, a little while, boy, Well, I thought it boy move a lot of a lot of Indian And next time I see him, Lord, he had his family there, on her. Oh, he left, take a lot of business, baby, way. Boy, no. I'm going down to Mississippi, gonna get a little down ahead of her. Boy, we just had a Ain't got to get bad, that, boy, I took you back on her. I let one suck all the blood and leave you a happy square. on her. The next time I see you, I had your family there. You need a wife, we stay down, in hey, it? Boy, you told wife, let's take this for a, it, it? Boy, you do wife, a wife, I'll make a law, on not it? I right, to we'll tell about it. Let her leave in Louisiana, go to no, Arkansas, Dad!